Assalamu alaikum and welcome back to Dogma Disrupted. Today we're here to talk about environmental destruction. The world's very, very quickly becoming an uninhabitable place. This is an existential threat for Muslims that unfortunately Muslims are not taking the lead on remedying this issue. And to talk about uh, this very important discussion, we have our esteemed guest, guest uh, Ramis Kent. Now, Ramis Kent is somebody who has uh, a lot of hats. <laughs> so I... I <laughs> Running down his CV is, is going to be rather burdensome. I'll suffice it to say that he's the co-founder of the IGE Pearl, the Islamic Gift Economy Program for Ethical, Appropriate, and Regenerative Livelihoods, which sums up, I think, uh, the general thrust of his work, permaculture, sustainable living, uh, and recapturing all that we lost when we moved away from those models. Sidi uh, Ramis, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me, Sidi. Uh, it's good to see you, and it's good to be on with you. Now, we're basing this conversation off of a very important paper that you wrote for Yaqeen Institute entitled Saving Truth and Beauty, The Destruction of Nature and the Islamic Solution. Um, for people who, unfortunately, unfortunately, that the default situation is that the environment is not something that people think about um, until it's gone. <laughs> it's, if health, if hu human health is any indicator, we don't think about the days that we're well until we're sick. We don't you know, think about sort of, you know, our muscles until we injure them. The environment is even more so that we don't think about it. It's there surrounding us, nurturing us, doing these things for us um, until we're about or on the brink of losing it. So if we're to have an honest look in the mirror right now, where do we stand? How do we grade our society when it comes to how we're treating the environment? Well, First of all, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim, Alhamdulillah, Alhamdulillah, Wa Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, Muhammad, Wa Ala Alihi Wa Sahbihi Wa Sallam Taslima. Yeah, we're we're not we're not doing too well. Um, you know, the the immediately what came to mind, if if I can use a you know a, a, an old or an older popular culture reference, you know the the um, the uh, Joni Mitchell song, you know, you know Big Yellow Taxi. You know, don't don't it always seem to go that you don't know what you got till it's gone? Pave paradise, put up a parking lot, and um, you know this. Our crisis is in many ways reflective of um, what I often like to frame as a as a as a problem of well, for one, is a problem in sort of a worldview hmm. that we've uh, subscribed to, um, kind of co collectively sub subscribed to specifically in reference to the type of economies that we have relied upon in order to provide uh, our needs and um, and our wants. And also, you know, there's, there's this view that somehow we are separate, again, from this habitat that we've been placed in the midst of. And and in viewing ourselves as being separate and also in seeing the world as only being comprised of material that is there for us to manipulate as opposed to it being, I think, in terms of uh, our understanding of religion, that the world is in many ways a theophany, right? It is an expression of uh, sort of divine attributes, if you will. Um, you know, if if you live in a world where you you believe it is an expression of 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 the divine, then then you're going to be in it in a very different way, as opposed to if you just think this is some kind of big cosmic accident, mm. and then you are sort of left, you know, to do things uh, on the basis of whatever it is you feel 
you are capable of doing. Um, you're going to come, I think you're going to arrive at a very different place depending on, on which idea you feel as though um, is legitimate, right? And that is, uh, and that is um, again, available to you in terms of what your, your capacities, what your technical capabilities are. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I think this is a problem that uh, I think in particular, and this is one of the things I address in the paper, um, I think this is something that is has been a problem specifically probably since the Enlightenment, um, especially. But kind of human history has been characterized by, you know, by these chronic uh, collapses of the environment that are based on um, our attempts to try to create a life for ourselves, right? So, you know, we're talking about the development of communities, societies, civilizations, and we're trying to uh, secure the products and services that make those lives uh, possible, you know, especially with regard to living in dense uh, population centers, right? Mm-hmm. That puts a certain amount of pressure, again, on the physical environments that we, you know, that we occupy. Yeah, I, I think that's uh, profound and something that is, I think, uh, refreshing for a lot of people to hear. So you're saying that, you know, if we're trying to diagnose this problem, it's not as simple as, well, we need to uh, reduce, reuse, recycle, and we need to buy less and, you know, have our little smaller plastic caps on our water, our plastic water bottle. You're saying that rather than that, and we'll go through sort of the logic in a second, but you're saying yeah. that this really comes down to your beliefs that... Yeah. You know, this is a whole downstream thing. You, it's like if you're aiming a gun or you're aiming a, a bow and arrow, how you face is going to completely determine the trajectory of where you're going to end up. And if you regard the existence, the material existence as sort of a spiritual, fundamentally spiritual thing, then you're going to treat it a lot differently. It's got different capacities for moral action, right? Sure. Um, then if you're just a materialist, you think this is just about cells. It's also about random. It's just about, you know, um, you know, quote unquote, brute matter. Um, right. There's a couple things I think we, we should go into further. So you talked about the enlightenment. So I think we need to make it very, very clear to people. Um, what exactly were the shifts in worldview that led us down this path? And a issue that I um, find myself having to address to other people is can secular environmentalism work? Does environmentalism have to be grounded in a metaphysics that has to do with Allah and you know, the things that we believe in? Well, I mean, one of the people that I've 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 leaned on to again provide a, a, a basis of understanding the the problem, right? The, the the really what lies at the at the root of the problem that kind of plagues us or we are, are challenged with is uh, Professor Muhammad Nakib Alatas, the, um, you know, the, the Malaysian scholar, philosopher, uh, theologian. And, uh, and specifically, you know, he talks about this in his book, uh, Islam and uh, Secularism. Um, and for those who are not familiar with it, this is the book here, uh, Islam and Secularism. He, and, and I think he, he, he frames this brilliantly in the, the, uh, in the opening chapter of the book where he sees he sees the environmental problem i mean and there are other issues that that he also highlights but he sees the the environmental problem this destruction of nature as being a product of secularism and secularization mm. in that the the that secularization is really about cutting the cutting off of 
the past, you know, the cutting off of uh, uh, tradition, the cutting off of there being any kind of understanding of our existence being tethered to something aside from the present moment, you know, the zeitgeist of the, of the, of the day and, and time. Um, so that means uh, most notably the cutting off of uh, worldviews that come, that come from some understanding of the human being outside of, again, simply being material. Mm-hmm. And so Again, if 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 there is if there is no belief, right, in anything aside from what one can see mm-hmm. at the moment, right, then you're sort of left to believe that, well, I, I suppose we just need to figure it out the best way we can. And you're sort of left to your own devices. And he actually talks about this, you know, brilliantly at the at the beginning of the book. Um and 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 I, you know, I I I mean, if we had more time, I'd I'd love to sort of read through, um, you know, this this first portion of the chapter. But you know, he he has this um, this really powerful explanation of how secularization has basically caused us to desacralize nature, mm. right? And also, you have this this uh, deconsecration of values, right? And and also. You know, he even talks about how, you know, politics have, have, have also been affected by this. But I think if you look at it, if you look at all of these issues as being connected, as not being, again, these isolated, um, siloed um, phenomena, you know, the way I often like to, to talk about this, especially, you know, we talk about this in the IGE Pro class, myself and Dr. Adi uh, Setia, you know, it really you're looking at a problem of, again, management. And and I and what I mean by management is if you if you think of what ethics are right you begin with ethics what what's what's ethics ethics or ethos right is is about um, sort of a code of morals or or a manner in which you are managing the self right so that you can be in the world in a certain way right especially in a way that doesn't harm others um, you go from this management of the self to then sort of the management of, again, this, this habitat or this place that you've been put in the midst of, right? And what is that? That's economics. That's economy, mm-hmm. right? Literally, the, the etymologically, the, it, the, the word means management of the household. Mm-hmm. Then you, you go to sort of a larger uh, scale version of the same thing, a regime of management. And when, what is that? That's, that's politics, right? Cosmos, cos, cos, cosmopolis. Right. You're you're it's the management of the larger household. Mm-hmm. So so when you sort of examine all of those things, you realize that, again, the consistent factor here is that we we are primarily concerned about the management of, again, ourself, then this household and then this larger household. And if you fail, especially if you fail to to, to do the first one. Mm. then everything else is going to fall apart. Mm. And I think really ultimately the, 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 the environmental crisis is really rooted in a crisis of management, first and foremost with, to, with ourselves mm. and, and, and our ability to manage our own desires, our caprice, mm. our, our, um, our behavior, mm-hmm. um, all, of, all of these things uh, then simply sort of radiates out to the world around us. Right. 
So it, it's almost like a materialist worldview. Um, it the capacities that it creates are capacities for greed, right? Uh, capacities for ingratitude. Um, there's no like gratitude isn't even legible in a materialist framework, right? No. As a concept, how like what do you have to be grateful for? The universe, the cells, the you know. Th there's nothing. There's no object of of gratitude, and there's no necessarily implied gratitude in the fabric of the creation or sure. you know, of the existence and also probably scarcity and we talk a lot and people i think are a little bit more familiar with the scarcity mindset versus abundance mindset if you're operating from a materialist worldview you're fundamentally starting out with a scarcity mindset um, absolutely so we come, yeah absolutely yeah, so we, we, people, you know, they, they, they sit in Econ 101 in their college courses and they don't realize how much philosophy or values are built into the supposedly self-evident truths that, that you learn about, such as, well, human beings are rational actors and the market is going to do this and, you know, the invisible hand is going to do that. This is all sort of the tip of the iceberg what is really an entire worldview that starts with materialism, it starts with sort of turning its back on ethics. And what do you think you're going to get as a result? I think that's what I hear you saying. It's like, if if we're all letting ourselves go, <laughs> like, I like to give people the analogies that have to do with like exercise in the gym, right? Sure. You, if you take a, like 20 of us and we let ourselves go, we're just eating potato chips and watching Netflix and whatever, then you sign us up to play a basketball game, we're going to get our butts kicked, right? That's we're going right. to do really, really bad. Sure. But if you have everybody sort of, they understand the duty, they understand their purpose, and they're working towards something, it creates a, a special type of capacity. Um, even the goals that we set for ourselves, is sometimes like if you think about econ, what's the goal of a materialist culture? They measure it, what do they measure success by? Right, you yeah. measure success by GDP, sure. by uh, something like this. GDP is through the roof, and everybody's miserable. Yeah. So what, what does that tell us? <laughs> what, what does that tell us about the human being and how you know really uh, we're, we've got a fundamental problem when it comes to how we even think about um, living in the world? That's uh, sure. Right now. Sure. I mean, if I could say something about that, I mean, the, the I think the and it's funny because this is something I, I address directly in the paper is is the fact that the health of a nation is, mer is measured by, again, gross domestic product, gross national product, um, which is, uh, I mean, it, it is mostly driven by consumer activity, right? So so the, one of the things that I, I remember years ago when this, this, this thought um, occurred to me was that, well, if that, that means that if I, actually, if I produce the things that I consume, right, if I, if I, if, i.e., if I'm actually responsible for my life, Right. Then I am. Then I technically am not contributing anything useful or beneficial to the national economy. Yeah. Which is which is a which is bizarre. Yeah. If I produce, if I become responsible for my life, or if, or the the community that I live within becomes responsible for their lives by actually providing themselves with the goods and the services that they need in order to live a life, we don't contribute anything beneficial to the nation. Yeah. So I think to go back to your point about there's a certain set of assumptions that accompanies um, specifically that accompanies certain conceptions of, 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 of economics and even the way that economics is defined. Right. It's the, you know, the consumption and production of goods and services uh, uh, produced from um, uh, scarce resources. Again, there's a whole that's a that's a loaded proposition There's a whole set of assumptions.
that we often don't question as to whether or not the assumptions are valid. Mm. And in and in many instances, if you really break it down, I mean, this economics sounds something akin to religion, right? right? Because there is a there is an entire worldview that you have to subscribe to in order to believe in that way of rendering the world. And I think, unfortunately, um, we're not necessarily trained um, to examine these things, you know, beyond sort of the surface um, kind of declarations or definitions that are that are that are provided to us. Right. You know, and in question it to the to the degree to which we're able to sort of stress test whether or not these definitions are, mm-hmm. in fact, uh, legitimate. Yeah. They're valid. Rather, we're trained to operate within them and then considered successful if we're able to make a certain wage off of them. That's kind right. of what, what success is. Right. If we if we're, if, if we're again, if we're able to sort of, um, you know, we can succeed within the confines, within the parameters of of the definitions that are provided to us, regardless of what kind of imp- what, what kind of um, detrimental impacts that that success mm. actually produces. So this, you know, this gets into the whole topic of, you know, externalities. Right. Right. So you, you know, you, you, your success is often a matter of privatizing the, you know, the benefits or the profits that are produced mm. from operating within the system and then externalizing the negative impacts to everybody else. Yeah, I, I, let's let's go into that in a second. Um, but I want to backtrack just a second to one thing you said. I'm really glad that you brought up secularism um, because as Muslims, we are um, in the crosshairs of, of secularism. Absolutely. What do you think it means that the Muslims are not at the forefront of these issues? Like, because if you look at the Muslims, especially Muslims in North America, let's just say, yep. we're indistinguishable from the rest of society when it comes to buying plastic forks and spoons for our masjid events and yeah. you know like the way that we you know just complete asphalt parking lots and right. right what does it say about us and what secularism has done to us that we are not at the forefront of remedying this issue you know i you know and i think we 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 actually you know spoke about we touched on this during our conversation and and i think in in uh when i saw you in pennsylvania at yeah. al-makassid um Again, another point that I, I I just you know remember when when this realization hit me that there there is nothing that meaningfully separates the Muslims from anybody else hmm. in terms of how we function. Well, well, certainly within this society, hmm. um, in that we participate in all of the same you know type of uh, all the same consumer behaviors. Um, as everybody else, you know, believer or not a non-believer alike. Right. So, you know, the only thing that, that, you know, we can say as, as a quote unquote religious community is that fine, we, we pray differently than everybody else. So kind of our ritual, our rituals are different, but what impact does our ritual, what impact do our rituals, rituals have in terms of how we are in the world? Mm -hmm. And in that sense, we are indistinguishable. We are indistinguishable. Shop, like you said, we shop at the same stores. We use the same products. Um, we are, you know, we we engage in the same uh, consumer behaviors. Um, you know, we, there, there's there's nothing that actually distinguishes us. Uh, that distinguish us. There's nothing to distinguish us from anybody else. 
And I think one of the communities that we had mentioned, you know, we talked about um, as being, I think, uh, sort of a model uh, of people that sort of demonstrates how one's worldview causes them to be in the world differently is a community like the Amish. Right. And I think, and I think a community and a community like the Amish demonstrates that people can still maintain the integrity of their religious identity. Right. And, and be, and, and be consistent, right. With the principles that supposedly define them as a community yes. in terms of their religious outlook. Yes. And I think that this prioritization of, um, of number one, I think being able to operate independently of the society, especially if that society functions in a manner that is um, that is diametrically opposed, right, to what it is that their that their uh, faith tradition says that they should be um, engaging in, or 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 it 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 is something that actually, uh, um, Yanni. It, it's definitely something you don't want to, you know, to, to promote or enable to, to gain strength. I mean, and this is what we do when we engage in, in, in an economy is that you are sort of voting with your dollars, right? You're right. voting with your feet and you are you are endorsing a certain way of being in the world on the basis of, again, what you buy mm. and and, um, you know, what kind of behaviors you engage in. Mm. And, and I think this is something that I think a lot of unfortunately, a lot of folks don't think about. You know, I think there's this feeling that, you know, I pray, I fast, I give my, you know, I give my charity, you know, I, I made my hajj and, and, you know, and I declared my faith and, and that's it. And, you know, one of the things that we've pointed out in, in, uh, in our course, and, and this actually comes from a passage in book 13 of the Ihya, Al-Lumadim, you know, from Imam Ghazali, is that you don't learn anything. You don't learn anything. None of the things you need to know about people, you don't learn anything about people by watching how they practice religion. Mm. And and ultimately, even the way that, you know, the Prophet sort of defined what a Muslim is and what a mu'min is, what a, what a Muslim is and what a believer is, in, in some of, in, in, you know, in some of the Hadith uh, traditions, some of the Riwayah, um, he doesn't reference acts of religion. So, right. for example, when he says that you know, a Muslim is one from whom other people's, uh, uh, a Muslim is one from whom uh, people are safe from their hand and their tongue, mm. right? He doesn't really, he doesn't reference religion. Or he says that a believer, a mu'min is one from whom other people's lives and wealth are safe from them. Right. Right. This, you know, this is a demonstration that there's, there are things about the way that we engage the mundane mm. in the world mm. is, is a much more reliable reference for us to understand whether or not a person is in fact ethical or moral, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, Omar Ibn al-Khattab has the famous quote about, you know, it's like, let me see him. Have you been on business with him? Right, right exactly. On business with him. Have you traveled with him, gone on a journey with him? Or have, have you seen you, how he deals with his neighbors? Yeah, with his neighbors. And those are considered what you're saying, you know, more... Um, you know, they're, they're better indicators of somebody's ethical behavior than going to the masjid and looking how they are in the masjid. Everybody's right. going to be, everybody's going to be what's I, And what's ajib about that passage, and actually that, that's precisely the one that I was, that I was referencing, exactly, yeah. it's, it's in the fifth chapter of um, book 13, is that the, the, the man that he was speaking to was, was supposed to serve as a witness. Right. And then, and then he had asked for a friend of his to, you know, to vouch 
for his, uh, you know, his his veracity, for his truthfulness. Mm. Right. And then and then he asked the questions and then he's and then again, he responds no to each. I haven't seen I've, I've not been with him to witness how he how he actually deals with people in those in those ways. And then the, and then and then he says to him, I said, I suppose you've only seen him in the mosque. Right. Right. right? You've only seen him in the mosque, you know, uh, you know, with people sort of reveling in his recitation of Quran and he's and he's bowing and, and doing all of these sort of outward shows of uh-huh. of, um, you know, of uh, of his uh, uh, subscribed of his practicing his faith. And the man says, yes. And then on that basis, Sayyidina Omar tells him, go for you do not know this man. Which is IG. A Facebook effect. That's what I call the Facebook effect. Hey, <laughs> because when you you get to present, you go into the masjid, you're your absolute best self. You curate, yeah. you, you know, all the rough edges, you smooth them out, you make sure that you're completely on point. But who's gonna do and this is like the the essence of ethics, who's gonna do the right thing when no one is looking? When no one is looking. Or when it's inconvenient and against your material interests. Tell right. Me. It's like exactly. To, to be nice to your neighbor or to not even be nice because be nice is you know, ethics is so much more than being nice to serve your neighbor and take care of their interests is inconvenient, you know, <laughs> to, you know, to be to go out of your way to be just uh, to somebody in business is inconvenient. Right. Exactly. Like, and so, and I'll put myself under the, you know, mm-hmm. under the microscope before anybody. I know I have room to improve with this sort of stuff, but that's really where the rub is. And that's where ethics comes in. What are your principles? What are your, in, where's your intentionality at? Or how intentionally are you living your life? Because if you're not living intentionally, and if you're not living according to principles, convenience is always going to win out when, sure. it, when it's against your material interest. Sure. So. sure. And, I, and I think one of the, one of the other important things about, you know, what is, uh, what is implied, right, by that, that particular story is that if you don't if if people that live within a community are only seeing people in a setting right where they are they're own they're only around folks when they are sort of engaging in this hmm. in in these practices right and and again there's this outward show of piety where at least according to say Omar that you don't learn about people by watching how they do these things, then to what degree do we actually have communities? Right. Right. Uh-huh. If, if you are not dealing with people outside of, hmm. you know, these, you know, these, uh, you know, outside of this setting where again, the only time you come together is, is when you are again, observing certain again, ritual practices, ritual religious practices. And if we aren't dealing with people again and doing the mundane and we're not either willing or able to deal with people, and and work with people in doing the mundane, then I I would venture to say that we don't really have communities. Right. Yeah. If you were to do a survey, for example, this could be an interesting thought experiment or an exercise for a community to go through. You know, how many people have you been inside their home? Right. Like, do you know their do you know their address? Right. Yeah. And unfortunately, I've been you know part of you know a handful of communities, and for most, I'm willing to say, for most Muslim communities, it'd be very few, it'd be very very seldom do the relationships spill over into the everyday outside, you know, outside the masjid, right? Sure. And that's a, that's a, a damning question to be honest on us. Like what kind of community do we have? Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think one of the, and I think one of the things I really appreciated about, again, our conversation back in, in June was 
you know, when when uh when you had actually brought up as an example the Amish, and and, and one of the things you had you had said was, you know, you had asked the question, why, you know, why don't they, you know, wh- why do they have this this prohibition against using, you know, motor vehicles? Yeah, right. And and I and actually I want you to to repeat the example that you gave yeah. about the sugar. Yes, exactly. No, I mean, like this. This is amazing. I, I find the Amish fascinating, and unfortunately, yeah. some people are allergic to to this example because they immediately go to, "Oh, you want us to live back like with camels?" And like that's not what I'm saying. Even though I think that'd be cool, personally, yeah. but yeah. that's not what I'm, what I'm saying. What I'm saying again, it comes back to intentionality to and principles. Exactly. Because why? Most people don't know why the Om- the Amish refuse to use cars. Yeah. Right. Nobody usually asks that question. They don't even think about it. Yeah. The reason is because they said, if we use cars, if I run out of sugar, I'm not going to go to my neighbor to ask right. to borrow some. I'm going to go to the store and buy it. Commodity, right. alienation, lack right. of community. And right. now my the whole community is suffering because right. I don't have that reciprocity, that relationship of mutual aid, of trust, of exactly. accountability. Right. If I borrow sugar from my neighbor, I'm going to have to see him again when I give it back. I'm going to have to accept when they have to borrow from me. Like the the relationship is so much thicker than that, right? When you're in this sort of relationship. And so, yeah, I mean, they said, no, we're not going to, we'll, again, convenience. We're yeah. choosing against convenience and right. we're going to choose for the relationship in the community. And I think that that's amazing. Our, if we were to give like an audit for the Muslim community, we don't have to come to the same conclusions, obviously, yeah. as, as the Amish do. Sure. But just the fact that they've that that's the level of their thought that they're thinking about what are our principles what are like how are we going to be intentional about what we choose and which technologies opportunities habits of consumption etc etc which ones are harmonious with our principles and which ones contradict our principles and the ones that contradict we're going to leave them we don't care even if everybody laughs at us everybody thinks we're freaks like we don't care Right. And the ones that are with us, we'll take them. We'll use them. Well, I think that's what we need in in the Muslim community. No, to my, and and, I, and, I, and actually, to your point, Tom, th- th- there's a, you know, if you think about the way that e- even, you know, the Prophet them qualified faith, mm. right? None of you truly believes, unless, right? Unless you wish, you know, you love for others what you love for yourself, and and right. even in in the in in the identification of who you know, the, the sort of these others are, these brothers and sisters are. I mean, it, they, it was not confined to one's co-religionist, mm. but I think to, to the point, the point to which this does apply to, to those who subscribe to the same faith as we do. And I think there's even that much more of an onus on, on us to extend ourselves to those who believe the same as, as we do, such yeah. that we want to create as much good as possible. We want to strengthen the bonds with those people as much as possible. I mean, one of the things that, uh, again, uh, the other references I made in the in the paper was um, was actually to uh, Ibn Khaldun. Mm. He talked about who who made reference to one of the things that actually causes a civilization to uh, collapse, right? To to dissolve, and he and he said he made reference to people falling prey to the pleasures of civilization, mm, right? Mm. To luxury, mm. to convenience, right? Um, and and if you think about one of the, the impacts or sort of products of uh, increasing levels of convenience mm. is that you need people less and less. 
Mm, mm. So if you think of, for example, um, sort of in the extreme case, um, if you go to Japan and they have this phenomenon known as the hikikomori, right? These are people that have not left their rooms or their apartments uh, in some cases for years because they've, for various reasons, decided to sort of drop out of society. But because they have the conveniences of modern living, they don't need to leave the house. Right. Right. Because if they want something to eat, you know, DoorDash, you know, yep. or Uber Eats or whatever, if they want, if they want to work, they can, they can work from, you know, the, the comfort, you know, the comfort of their home, you know, they can, they can sort of, you know, stay in their pajamas and, and, and do their work on their laptop without having going into the office, having to go into the office. Hmm. You know, some of them are even hiring, um, you know, sort of surrogate siblings or wow. parents or, you know, or, uh, you know, or significant others. Hmm. I mean, it, it's so the, the social cohesion that is created by people actually engaging in, you know, in these activities that actually makes a community possible. So again, if we re refer to the Amish again, these are people that farm together, yeah. they build barns and houses together, you know, they maintain their animals, they're doing all, all of the things that the act the community needs in order to actually exist and function. And really, this is the story of civilization, yeah. is that it it's it's this ability for people to come together cooperatively and they're all doing their part to actually create this this edifice mm. that results in one's ability to live a life and, and 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 most importantly to live a life that they're not dependent on on anyone say outside of that community right in order to have the things that they need yeah. this is really what ultimately um what ultimately needs to be built if we are to have any kind of uh, kind of communal or social integrity yeah. that uh, enables us to be able to, uh, again, uh, address these challenges, face these challenges that are uh, increasingly uh, you know, facing us. Yeah. No, I mean, that that brings us back to the idea of externalities, right? Because I, you know, this doesn't come, this comes at a cost, right? To live and, and subhanAllah, you know, the example of Japan, almost like the full logical conclusion of the individualistic society um, with the phenomenon that you're referring to, right? It seems to me that there's three sort of categories of externalities, right? So so one is that, the complete like um, destruction of community and civilization. Sure. The second is the de-skilling and the alienation of the individual. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, no. Thank, thank you for mentioning that, because that's another that's another very important point. So, no, please go ahead. Well, yeah, I mean, I'd love to, to hear your, your comments. But but to, just to think about that, that hyper urban, hyper sort of individualistic person sure. pressing buttons, pressing buttons, pressing buttons. Sure. You can't you can't do anything. Right? right. Like, really, like you can't build a house. You can't right. build a boat. You can't, um, you know, like, um, you know, birth an animal, let alone a child. Right. A human right. Child, right? Like all right. Of the different for every technology. And this goes back to the Greeks, like for every technology that is introduced, a skill is lost. Yeah. Now, again, that doesn't mean that we're against technology, but you have to be intentional and principled in which technologies you're going to utilize, you know, have that cost benefit analysis sure. and, and which ones it's like. The, the cost of losing this skill is actually a liability. And yes, if, we lose, if we lose the ability to grow food, the Muslim community in America does not grow its own food, right? Then 
we're vulnerable as a community. Someone can control us. Someone, if someone wants to t turn off, you know, the spigot and like and mess with us in a certain way, that's a vulnerability that we have. Exactly. So both communally and individually, there's a huge de-skilling of the population where we just don't know what to do, how to do things anymore. Yeah, and it's and it's funny. So um, again, this is something else I refer to in the paper. is a is a great book written by um, James C. Scott, who's a professor of agrarian studies at uh, Yale. He wrote a book called. Uh, Against the Grain, A Deep History of the Earliest States. And he actually makes mention at this point of, of de-skilling um, because what he, what he, he talks about something uh, that he calls the four domestications, mm -hmm. right? So he says that they were, that, that, that basically ag agriculture um, and, and, and sort of his analysis of the, you know, of this, this, uh, you know, this phenomenon is, is a product of what he calls the four domestications, which would be plants, animals, fire. And uh, the last one is, I think, particularly interesting, people, right? So you have this domestication of plants, animals, fire, and people. I would, I would actually say that there's a fifth, water, that, that that's something else that has to be sort of domesticated in a way such that you have, again, access to it. Mm. Uh, but how do you domesticate people, right? Um, and one of the ways that he talks about the manner in which people are domesticated is through the process of de-skilling to where they become less independent, right? And they, and, and, and as they become more and more dependent, right? Less independent, they become more sort of ripe or ready for capture. Mm. Right. And so this is something that certainly w could be said for this transformation of people from functioning primarily as producers, and they increasingly become more and more defined as uh, consumers, right? So if, if people are only valued in what they consume mm. more so than what they produce, and this is precise, this, this goes back to the point made about, um, again, measuring the health of a nation by their GDP, right? And if GDP is mostly uh, driven by consumer activity, mm. then, and you need people less and less to produce things, right? Why? Because so much, so much of production is, um, incre is, is more and more uh, provided to us through automation, uh, again, through outsourcing to fewer and fewer people, right? So you need people less and less in that regard and you need them to still function in some way, shape, or form as uh, customers for the things that you're producing, then yes, you, this is where de-skilling becomes a really uh, a critical part of the conversation. Now, the, 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 um, what I mentioned about capture, and this actually speaks to our, our eschatology. If you think about a figure like the Dijal, right? right? Yep. And Allah protect us from, you know, from, from his machinations I mean um, one of the things that people are asked and, and folks need to be reminded of this one of the things people are asked when he emerges mm. is um, they ask why do you follow him right and the and the and the answer is quite frightening and it speaks directly to what we're saying the response is because he feeds us yeah which is um, which is a stunning realization is that the most serious threat 
to humanity. You know, in it's, since its inception, is uh, is going to have people fall prey to him because he feeds them, hmm. which would imply that they no longer have the capacity to be able to feed themselves. And and I think people should be um, extremely frightened by that. Yeah. No, that's terrifying. <laughs> and uh, yes, yeah, a a lot. So, you know, that's, I, I like this conversation because we're talking about externalities and the human cost. And we haven't even talked, we haven't even talked about pollution, <laughs> right? You know what I mean? It's like, we're talking about like, just, to, just, I love it, but it, it has to be done to show people how expensive this thing is, you know, in the, sure. in the broadest, uh, the broadest sense of the term. Sure. Community has gone individual sort of being able to sustain yourself is gone. Like the human life is miserable. That's not even getting at the destruction to the world of making it uninhabitable, the pollution, what's in our water, you know, the hormones and the medicinals, the pharmaceuticals that are in everything that we do and everything that we touch, you know, the list goes on and on and on. Right. So I think that if we're doing a scared straight episode, this is the, the, the scared straight sort of um, component of this conversation is that you, know, you we got to wake up. Like if yeah. whatever is the button, the push, if it's the gel, if it's, you know, the, the end of the world or sure. et cetera, you know, though, you know, and I mentioned this in the beginning, but you know, I critique secular environmentalism, right. As, yeah. as, as not, I don't think that, it's ever going to be able to do it because, and I've, I try to make things as brief and provocative as possible in some of the things I put on social media, but some people might not understand it. So someone asked me one time um, about global warming and I said provocatively, I said global warming is irrelevant, right? Yeah. Not because it's not happening, right. but if we're making the debate about, if the argument is the globe is warming, therefore we need to do something about it, then that invites somebody else to say, no, it's not, it's not warming or yeah. it's warming, but it's part of a larger cycle. It's going to cool down again right. or it's warming, but we're not responsible for it. It's something else that's going on. Yeah. You can't win that argument. Rather, I think the way of Islam and in, in my perspective is what's the right thing to do, whether, the, whether the earth is warming or cooling or whatever, what's the right thing to do in the most, like the thickest sense of what it means to do the right thing. Yeah. And then we'll be fine with the consequences, you know? Yeah. I mean, what's, so I think what's interesting about that is, you know, I think this speaks to a, a larger question of, you know, what, why are we here? Yeah. You know, why, why do we exist? And, you know, this gets into, you know, what I, you know, what, what have often, you know, and this actually, I got a credit that comes in with this you know, sort of the five big questions, mm. you know, um, the, you know, the, the, there's the cosmological question, the epistemological question, the, the, uh, ontological question, the, the soteriological question and the eschatological question needing to be answered. And you could probably throw in, te you know, t the teleological question, axiological question, you know, who are we, you know, what are we, where do we come from? You know, what is all of this? Mm -hmm. You know, um, what am I supposed to be doing while I'm here? Mm -hmm. You know, if I want to meet a good end. Yeah. Um, and what happens after this? Like, where am I? Where am I heading to? And I think there comes a point when I think you 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 become aware that these are things that you need to become that you that these are questions needing to be answered, demanding to be answered. And I think when you become serious about your life, 
you become aware of the fact that these are things you need to be concerned about, then you undertake a search. And I think for many of us, you know, trying to trying to answer these questions eventually led us again to becoming Muslim. You know, it led us to Islam. Yeah. Um, but I mean, all but these are things that are also directly, alhamdulillah, thank, you know, thankfully they are they are actually directly answered, you know, by the tradition. And so, you know, one of the one of the uh, one of the quotes that I actually have in, you know, in the in the piece is from Aragab al-Isfahani, who, mm-hmm. who, you know, he says he, he mentions that, you know, the human being is here to to serve sort of three existential roles. Right. And the first, you know, the first one he mentions is Imarat al-Ard, right? The, we're here to, you know, for the betterment or the cultivation of, of Earth, right? And now what, again, the betterment and cultivation, what does it mean to cultivate something, right? You, you're, you are participating in its being made better, mm-hmm. right? And sort of this, it's further beneficial uh, 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 development, mm-hmm. like it's fully able to express what it was made to be. Mm-hmm. The second one he mentions is um, ibadah, right? Worship, and and this could extend beyond solely the ritual acts of worship. You know, this could also extend to again mundane acts that are intended to be as worship. And the third one he mentions is uh, khilafa, right, or the stewardship of the creation. So what's interesting is the the sort of the three purposes he highlights. Um, Two of them have direct reference or make direct direct reference to the manner in which the human being comports itself in relation to the creation. Mm. Right. And then he and then he says that that in doing so, that the human being is to rule, uh, imitating mm. uh, sort of divine attributes. Right. Right. And the imitation of Allah and the five attributes he mentions, and they basically they're they're almost like the cardinal virtues, right? Of mm-hmm. of justice, courage, temperance, and and uh, and uh, justice, courage, temperance, and um, patience. I'm not sure. I got to I got I got to remember the four virtues. Yeah. I, I, I'm drawing a blank right now. Um. Uh. So and so he mentions the five, right? The five that he that he that he highlights in in his um sort of his version is wisdom. Okay, wisdom. Actually, that was the fourth. Wisdom, go. justice, beneficence, graciousness, right? Wisdom, justice, beneficence, graciousness, and forbearance. Those go. are the five he mentions, right? I think the previous, again, the, the cardinal virtues are wisdom, justice, um, temperance, and courage. I'm sorry, that's what it was. Courage was the, was, was the other one. So, and, and, in, and in putting those those qualities on display. He said, and this is where the eschatological uh, portion comes in, right? Where are you headed? Where are you trying to go? He says that doing so allows for a person to gain paradise and ultimately Mm. proximity to God, Mm. right? Now that's the goal. The goal isn't necessarily to save the environment, right? You know, it's not to heal the climate or the earth, right? That's, that's something Yanni, we should all be sort of automatically, yes, you know, sort of again, as given what we've been made, mm-hmm. we should be we should be drawn to doing that anyway. Yeah, the goal is to literally, our goal is to arrive to God. 
it's almost the consequence of arriving to God. It's right? a, it is the consequence of arriving it's to, God. Happen. to God. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. And 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 so I think this is and and I think the one of the the problems of not only the mod, the modern environmental movement, but I would also say, kind of modern, sort of contemporary, conventional economic theory, mm-hmm. is ultimately what is the end game? Yes, right. You know what? Wh- where are you trying to go? Yep. And if if you're not able to definitively answer that, if there's no consensus then I think, you know, that should give people pause, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And so I, you know, the, the, and then also the fact that we're, we're given an understanding as to what it is that we should avoid mm-hmm. by the tradition. So for example, the, the ayah in uh, Surat al-Rum, right? Corruption has appeared on the land and the sea, right? right? But what the hands of human beings have wrought mm-hmm. and that they might taste the pain of what it is that they've done in the hope that they might return. Mm-hmm. Right or whatever is or whatever misfortune befalls you, uh, he pardons much. Right, so that 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 you know, I'm sorry. Whatever misfortune befalls you, it's be, it's because of what your hands have earned. Mm-hmm. Sorry, mm-hmm. and then he pardons much. But the fact that we can sort of go either way, we can either we can either be in the world in a manner that actually again makes it better, right, or we can corrupt it. Yeah. You know, meaning we we can introduce errors into something that has been made sound. Mm-hmm. Right. And we're told that over and over again, you know, with, within within the Quran and within the tradition is that the is that this world, the world is made perfect. Mm-hmm. Right. It was made sound. It was made green and verdant. Mm-hmm. Right. And that Allah is actually watching what we do mm-hmm. put in this environment, put in this habitat. And then on the basis of what we do, this is how we are able to actually show who we actually are. Yeah. So the way forward, I think I'm going to just pull out a couple of things that we've already sort of mentioned. If we're thinking about the way forward, you know, the first is to change our thinking, right? And to understand to, to understand ourselves properly, the the creation properly, our purpose properly, all the things that you just mentioned. It, it all starts with how you think about the thing. Absolutely. We also we also talked about sort of the, the cultivation of virtue. You have to have a, a virtuous human actor if any of this is is going to happen. Um, Absolutely. We, we are only going to go as far as our sincerity and virtue take us. So right. um, and it's the absence of intentionality and sincerity and virtue that has landed us in this entire mess. What else needs to be there or what else can be there when it comes to uh, the way forward? Yeah, I, I think that that also it, it's not only a, about kind of how we resolve to change who we are, change the way we are as individuals. Mm-hmm. We also need to do the work necessary to actually, again, actually create communities mm-hmm. that are operating that, that that are operating according to these these principles, to these ideas. Um, and again, that is done not by only coming together to observe, you know, again, certain kind of ritual religious observances, mm-hmm. you know, or, or practices that it, it really comes down to whether or not we're actually coming together to do like kind of the mundane things. Um, And I think in particular, you know, the reason why something like, uh, again, agriculture or the cultivation of land is so important is because this is the basis, this provides the basis upon which our lives are made possible Mm -hmm. as communities, right? We're not outsourcing that to somebody else. 
right? Yeah. That that quite literally, the the you know what 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 Scott you know says in his book is that you know polities, right? Um, states were made possible mm. through this collective engagement of again cultivating a, a, a space to provide the things that actually makes their coming together and staying together possible. In addition to, and this is something I neglected to mention earlier, bringing us closer to Allah's signs. You know, one thing that that I've tried to to get people to shift their perspective on is that if you spend, if you're just in your air-conditioned house, then you walk down the pavement to your air-conditioned car and then you go to your air-conditioned office and that's your life. You live in a city, you can't see the stars at night, you know, yeah. these sorts of things. You're cut off from all of the tools that Allah uses to persuade you in the Quran. Tamam, and that's exactly tries to appeal to human beings to strengthen their conviction, to help inspire and motivate their obedience. He always goes through these signs that he he has made in the way that he created. Yeah, look look at this, and then tell me. So we're we're only uh, we're cutting off the branch that we're sitting on. Yeah. Right. Um, by alienating ourselves, in addition to the other things about, you know, community and society. And, um, you know, another thing that uh, that occurs to me, I'm, I'm thinking a lot, especially with what's going on now in, in Philistine about naming okay. in language. Right. And I think that there's another front that we need to fight when it comes to the way that what, what we call things and the, the terms that we use. Yeah. Think about think about the whole concept of throwing it away. Right. Yeah. L- like we live in a very disposable throwaway culture because there's the optics of it. The reality of it is removed from like what actually happens to your trash when you get rid of it, where does it go? What happens? It's completely out of our consciousness. And so just like, you know, segregated housing or something like that, if you don't see poor people, if you don't see people of other, you know, uh, ethnicities or whatever, you don't have that lived experience that you, you you're sort of your, your metrics are all wonky you know your instruments are all not they need absolutely calibration right. to have a living relationship with my food comes from here this plot of earth and my trash goes here this right. plot of earth yeah. i think goes a long way and not calling it something like throwing away i don't know maybe we need a new language for these sorts of things but i think yeah. it is significant no, no, well, well, uh, no, it absolutely is significant. I mean, one of the kind of one of the central themes that that um, I often like to, you know, discuss this, um, you know, under underneath the umbrella of is, is you know, there's there's the ayah from uh, Surat al-Isra, um, where, uh, you know, Allah, Allah says, verily, the wasteful, the yeah. squanderers, the mubedirin, mm. are the brothers, mm. Of the shale team, mm. right? And ever has Shaitan been ungrateful to his Lord? Yes, I know. So look, so look at what, look at all of the the qualities that are mentioned in that ayah, right? The, the those who are wasteful, those who squander the blessings that are given to them, they are the brothers, they are the kin, right, of the shale team, and that and that this also is a hallmark of one being uh, ungrateful. Mm. Right. It's a, it is a it is a hallmark sign of ingratitude. Mm. Now, if you if you look at, OK, well, what's what's the other side of the coin from that? Right. So Dr. Ibrahim. Right. If you are grateful. Right. I will I will, I will be more increase. <laughs> right. But if you are ungrateful. My punishment is severe. Subhanallah. Now, it's it's spelled out very clearly. 
Okay, so if if ingratitude in the world is to squander or is to, or is to waste, then what does gratitude look like? What is what what does that look like as a practical matter? Yeah, right. And and I think, you know, I would suggest that gratitude looks like regeneration, mm. restoration, mm. right, betterment, right. You're given something, and you actually you you are you work in a manner or you operate in a manner that actually makes that thing better, mm. or it it is able to kind of again fully sort of express what it has been made. Right. And you are an agent in facilitating that. So and I think this is something that is, you know, again, speaks to the problematic nature of of, of uh, you know, the whole consumerist rending of the world. Ideas like planned obsolescence. Right. Yeah. You have to get on your phone every year. Yeah. Yeah. Right. All of those all of these ideas are it grows out of this this view that somehow the wasting of things mm. right for the sake of being able to bring in the new yeah right to constantly status. recreate it status yeah to be able yeah, to be able to, know, to leave food on your plate to be able to leave food on your plate is anyway. a status symbol right <laughs> which is which is crazy which is crazy <laughs> from a from a working class household where you know my father would have whooped me if i left anything <laughs> on my plate and working in restaurants. No, and, and, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> like, how do you leave food on a? How do you yeah. leave food on a plate? Thank you for saying that, Tom. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it's uh, it's just it. It's not even understandable. But no, I mean, but it shows you how how far ideology does play into it because it's all Absolutely. about symbol, symbol and meaning. What people think that they're doing when they're leaving food on their plate is they think that they're showing istignat. They think that they're showing that they don't need it and they're above it and they're et cetera. But this is this is ingratitude. And this is something that's morally appalling. Absolutely. And and I think this, you know, and again, as you said, it's I mean, so much of this is about recalibrating the way that we, you know, we see ourselves. Right. And, and also our understanding of as to what the world is and how we and what we understand ultimately sort of the the, the mission that has been assigned to us, mm. right, to carry out. And, and ultimately, the, the, the ability for us to be able to fulfill, you know, the, the, you know, whatever role that we've been given, um, ultimately that being able to take us to where it is that we say that we want to go, mm-hmm. right? But the proof's in the pudding, yeah, right? We, got, we, we either, you know, we either got to put up or, you know, remain reticent. That's right. <laughs> That's beautiful. Okay, last last question, last thought before we wrap up here. Okay, are there any cuz a lot of people, you know, if they get inspired, they get motivated, they want to know a model, and this is from the Sunnah of Allah, Subhanahu wa Ta'ala, when he sent messengers, he could have just given us books, but he sent messengers to show us how it looks embodied. Yeah. Are there any models that we have that we can look to or look towards when it comes to this type of regeneration that we're talking about? Absolutely. I mean, I, I, I mean, histo- it's I mean, historically, interestingly enough, um, I mean, this was actually said to be a hallmark of the Muslims. I, ju- I just I just did a speaking engagement at uh, Baylor University at uh, Truett Seminary. Mm. Um, you know, this is a few weeks, you know, a few weeks ago. And I and I brought to the attention of these folks, um, the you know the work the work of our you know brother uh, Dr. Kareem Lahim, who actually wrote a brilliant article called the the Vocational Society, which actually speaks to a lot of what we've been talking about. 
um, he he manages the Filaha Text Project, which is you know which is about these books of land husbandry. You know that in some cases, I mean, the earliest book they have in the collection, I think, dates back to the early 10th century. You know, early 900s, mm-hmm. and and they're books from various portions of the Muslim world dealing with uh, the topic of you know the cultivation of land, the betterment of land. Right. And then how this served as um, the basis upon which these incredible civilizational achievements that the Muslims were able to accomplish. It was on the backs of their ability to be able to provision themselves, not only themselves, but also those people that they came into contact with. And a lot of what we see, you know, in in the in the new world actually is a legacy of what our, you know, our our ancestors were able to create. you know, some of the so, for example, I mean, and there's a there's a I mean, there's a point that that uh, I, I meant to mention. I mean, there's a beautiful hadith um, that's attributed to the Prophet mentioned in uh, Imam Shibani's book on on kasab, you know, on on livelihood, mm-hmm. and it's and it's actually in a section that asks the question, which is superior, um, or more commerce or farming, right? And actually, in his estimation, you know, he says that the, you know, uh, any the 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 you know majority of scholars actually say that farming is uh, is more superior, or the cultivation of land is more superior because more broad benefit is produced from it. Mm-hmm. And so he happens to mention a hadith where the Prophet says that the farmer, the cultivator of land, is trading with his lord. Allah. And and so I think that sentiment was something that was really taken to heart by the earlier communities. Mm. I mean, of course, these are, you know, these are sort of pre-modern, pre-consumer peoples. Yeah. And so they saw the the importance of being able to provision themselves. Yeah. And and because of that, you have a civilization like the, you know, like the the, the Muslims of Spain that at one point during the the Middle Ages, what were the dark ages for Europe, um, Spain had a population of 30 million people, and this is and this is at a time when you took if you took the mo- the four most populous countries in Europe at the time would have been which, which would have been England, France, Germany, and Italy maybe had a population a combined population of 15 to 20 million people, hmm. and and so not only do you have this apparent you know ability to provide abundance to all of these folks, it also served as the backdrop against which all of these amazing civilizational accomplishments were were produced whether you're talking about arts architecture literature law mathematics science that all of these things were actually produced um, on the backs of their ability to demonstrate their willingness and their skill and their acumen as cultivators not only of land not only of the, the actual physical landscape but you also see as a product this cultivation and this development of the human landscape, mm. and 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 that that symmetry, sort of that, yani this mirroring of one's ability to function as a cultivator, as an agent of of improvement and betterment, is you can't you can't, and I don't think you can become a better person, a better human being without engaging this aspect of our existential purpose in the world is actually making the world a better place by 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 helping it to 
to fully express what it was made to be. Well, Akbar, I think that's a, a perfect note to end on, uh, though we could talk about this for a long, long time. Indeed. So we'll, we'll have to uh, you know, have a follow-up at some point. But uh, Sidi Ramis Kent, thank you so much for joining the program today. Wonderful reflections. May Allah bless you and all you do. Why, well, Akbar, thank you for finding for the invitation. Yeah, and, and I hope uh, we, get we need to get together again soon. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it, inshallah. Barakallah. Subhanakallahum alhamdulillah. Ashhadu an la ilaha illa anta astaghfiruka wa atubu ilaik. Assalamu alaykum wa rahmatullah. Wa alaykum assalam wa rahmatullah wa barakatuh.